Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk distressed debt. One would think that after the 16 months we've just experienced with the global pandemic and the global economic disruption, that there would be plenty of distressed debt. Paul Trigiani, he's a managing director and head of distressed debt for Invesco, joins us. Paul, thanks so much uh, for taking the time here. Talk to us about the distressed debt market. Are there opportunities out there? Are you seeing more distressed debt or did the Federal Reserve backstop pretty much everything? So uh, thanks for having me. Yes, I think generally speaking, over the last 12 to 18 months, we have uh, we've really seen a, a, a generational opportunity in distressed debt investing. Um, most companies 12 to 18 months ago um, had pretty severe revenue shortfalls. Supply chains, in many cases, were were pretty severely disrupted, and and all companies were were, were broadly affected across uh, most geographies. And so there was, there was really plenty to do in terms of looking for distressed opportunities. If you fast forward to where we are today, we think many of the larger companies have had access to liquidity, whether that be through the public equity and credit markets rallying or uh, the Federal Reserve backstop, as you, as, as you, as you mentioned. Um, the, the caveat to that is that the small cap space, which is a large focus for us, has really been left behind uh, in many ways. These smaller companies don't have the same level of access to capital. Uh, many of them are private, um, and many of the lending facilities that were put in place really have not uh, allowed uh, many of these smaller private businesses, uh, several of which are, are, uh, are private equity-owned, to, to access that liquidity. So it's, it's still quite a robust opportunity for small companies. Paul, how much has the market view changed. I remember um, last year, we heard a lot of economists warning about these cascading bankruptcies. It was going to be catastrophic. And it doesn't look like that really happened. No, I think it's, you think in our view, that's correct, particularly in the, in the large cap market. I think many of those companies uh, were able to get, uh, get capital through various different means. Um, the equity markets, obviously, as we all know, have come back. The public credit markets have come back. And so, um, uh, in, in large part, the large cap distressed opportunity, which was significant 12 to 18 months ago, uh, seems uh, relatively small today. But that having been said, if you look at the, the, the private universe of smaller companies, um, uh, again, if, if you were to take sort of lower middle market or small cap companies that are generally leveraged buyouts or management buyouts owned by private equity firms, um, uh, there, there's still pretty significant opportunity there, and you still are seeing a significant amount of defaults um, in, in sub-$500 million companies and, and a significant amount of reorganizations. Many of those companies, um, because they're private, um, have less access to capital. The direct lending and private credit universe has not, has not stepped in to finance distressed companies. And if you look, for example, at what we put in place in the U.S. in terms of the Main Street Lending Facility, that um, that ended the year less than one percent utilized, um, which was fairly significantly underutilized, obviously, uh, because it effectively barred private equity-owned companies from borrowing. So, um, it, it's really been a, a very different story in the, in the small cap universe in terms of, of bankruptcies. Paul, what sectors are you guys doing some of your most work right now? 
So the, the, the interesting point about the, the smaller cap segment is that it tends to be more diverse. If you look at large cap distress, it's tended in the last five, seven years to be very focused around retail and energy. Um, and that's probably not surprising given what's gone on in those two industries. The small cap space over time, if you look over the last two decades, has been pretty pretty diverse in terms of industry focus. So we're looking at companies in, in general industrials, in the healthcare sector, um, in consumer sectors, in, in small financial businesses. So it, it's, it's, it's really across the board um, a very diversified opportunity set in terms of, of, of the smaller end of the market. What if you look at it the other way around? I mean, you're used to obviously trying to find um, areas that the market sees as distressed, but you think, you know, maybe not, may, may not fail. Are there industry groups, for example, that you think have been given too much credit? Um, so we, I, I think we were initially very cautious on some of those industry groups um, uh, that were particularly COVID impacted. And so maybe one way to think about it was, um, that there's really been sort of the direct COVID-impacted industries, um, and you can think about um, theater chains, for example, or you can think about um, uh, shopping malls, things like that, where social distancing norms changed over the last 12 to 18 months, or airlines, for example. Um, and, and so obviously um, th- this pandemic has had a sort of beginning, a middle, and hopefully an end here, and so people have seen their way through uh, distress and are looking forward a year or two in terms of normalization of those. Um, we still remain pretty cautious on on, on those areas. I, I think the, the 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 larger funds and larger cap distress market has has shown quite a bit of interest in those, and, and we're still fairly cautious on on that part of the market. Again, those are those are larger companies, and we generally focus on. Um, so, so that's our thoughts there. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts here on this interesting uh, segment of the fixed income market. Paul Trigiani, he's a managing director and head of distress credit at Invesco. I want to bring in now Mira Pandit. As we said, she's a global market strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. And the reason I almost forgot, tomorrow is jobs day. It's a non-farm payroll. How can you forget? This is like Tom's monthly highlight. I know. Well, it is. (laughs) uh, I've always called it the granddaddy of all economic statistics. It's it's a big deal, and there's a lot of volatility around it. A lot of times, uh, people will stop trading for a moment while it comes out. Um, Mira, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Let us get your insight on on what to expect here. You know, we've had some big misses, but uh, obviously things are going in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. So we're forecasting about 600,000 jobs were added in June. So pretty much in line with what we saw back in May, um, slightly above. But we're probably going to see continued strength in areas like leisure, hospitality, broad-based within the services as those areas of the economy really come back. Could potentially see um, some seasonal effects on the negative side in terms of education as teachers adjourn for the summer. But given the layoffs we've already seen in that space, those challenges are, are, are well understood and could be less of a headwind around. And I'd say that overall that could bring our unemployment rate from about 5.8% down to about 5.5% in line with the decline last month. So ultimately the risk here in the jobs report is probably really to the downside and not because the economy is not creating jobs, but just because we can't fill them at, at a rapid enough clip. So, Mira, as we think about the jobs market, we, that brings us to you know, potential for wage inflation. 
we haven't had, you know, we, there was a period in the market, you know, let's call it a month or two ago, where inflation was really a concern for this market. It seems to have faded a little bit. Where are you in terms of thinking about inflation in this market, whether it's transitory, whether there really is some longer risk concerns? Ultimately, I'd think about it on the 2021 basis and then the kind of three to five year basis. And I'd say from a 2021 perspective, the higher inflation numbers we're seeing now probably are mostly transitory. We're seeing some of those base effects play out, higher energy prices versus last year, um, higher services on a, on a month-over-month basis as services kind of start to come back, um, evidence of supply chain issues. But look, we've already seen a lot of commodity prices peak out. I think that some of these things will play out over the course of the year. But, I mean, as you say, with some of the higher wage pressures, we're probably in for an environment of slightly structurally higher inflation over, say, the three to five year timeline. Let's think maybe two to three percent inflation as opposed to the sort of two percent or sub two percent inflation we've been seeing kind of pre-COVID post-financial crisis. It's no big deal. Me and Paul are children of the 70s. We know what (laughs) real inflation is like. And that wasn't even like real inflation. It's always interesting. Somebody today brought up the Weimar Republic, and I was like, dude, that was really bad. The 70s, we're not even there yet. So we're worried about 3 or 4%. It's NBD. The labor shortages, are they going to be a problem for the market or um, just add to upward pressure on wages? Well, we're in, in such an odd environment in that there's about 9.3 million job openings, but there's also about 9.3 million people unemployed. So the labor shortage challenge is an interesting one that we're seeing across small business surveys, consumer surveys, that people just can't fill openings. And I think in the short run, that's probably going to continue to push up wages because we are seeing companies either offer, you know, bonuses to submit applications, bonuses after, you know, two months time, um, higher wages. Uh, we're, we're seeing that on a month over month basis. But the question is how long 100000 to start for a junior analyst. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, but what we are kind of seeing from a broader perspective is that a lot of states are taking away those uh, enhanced supplements to unemployment benefits. In fact, about half of states have throughout the month of June and a few more in July. So, by the time we get to September, when the rest will also expire, you know, people should be um, kind of coming back off the sidelines, combined with the fact that. Um, hopefully kids will be back in person full time at school. So people who have child care challenges should also um, have a bit of luck there and, and be able to get back into the labor force. Amira, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Amira Pendant, she's global market strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, joining us on the phone from New York. Max Chafkin joins us. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Business Week. He's actually, Matt, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. And the story he has is a junior Microsoft engineer figured out a nearly perfect Bitcoin generation scheme. So I know it's right down your alley, Matt. And uh, Part of the heist issue. Yeah, exactly. $10 million. Dollars. Re- oh, okay, so it's part so of the it's, Bloomberg it's, it's big take, right? But it's also, Max, is this also... Uh, in the business week heist issue. Yep, yep. For uh, for for this week, we've got uh, a full issue. There's actually no news in the issue. It's only <laughs> stories about um, sort of crimes, scams. Um, it's it's our as you say uh, beach reading issue. Uh, so we've got this really fun one about a. It's kind of a weird digital currency scam. Yeah, we, this we talk is about the this new a lot, frontier but, of crime. It seems like so. Tell us, it's not weird. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so this is we were we uh, the writer. 
Austin Carr and I were, were joking about this as as the you know ultimate Xbox, the ultimate video game cheat. This was a uh, basically a junior uh, employee at Microsoft whose job was to test the store where people buy stuff on Microsoft's website, and he figured out a way to get basically an unlimited number of Xbox gift cards. If you're a gamer, mm, these yes. cards contain codes, and and you can use them to buy games. You can buy content. You can also buy you know stuff like five by five codes i uh, am an xbox fanatic my (laughs) gamer tag is shower fan if anybody wants to challenge me from halo to call of duty to red dead redemption i have easily spent thousands of dollars how old are you matt (laughs) 47 (laughs) okay but i've also always wanted to be part of a heist and this is a pretty awesome one because the guy actually gets what like 10 million bucks right and he spends it on cool stuff Oh yeah, he gets ten million bucks. He uh, flips these five by five codes on a website called Paxful, which is a, a site where people trade these things. Uh, this is something I, I didn't know it. about it, but it's a it's a really robust market. In fact, he was selling so many of these codes, you know, thousands of them, that he was manipulating the price of of Xbox currency, according to the IRS, when they you know came after him. Then he turned that into Bitcoin. He put his Bitcoin through a crypto money laundering thing. <laughs> Spits out some clean coin, and then, as you say, starts buying uh, cool stuff. Uh, when the uh, feds uh, caught up to him, you know, they found him in his you know seven-figure late lakefront house uh, somewhere, some nice part of uh, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest, yeah. like someplace amazing. By the way, fun fact: I used Paxful uh, a few years back. I went two weeks without spending U.S. dollars. I, well, I only spent Bitcoin. Was my was my challenge, and I had to get stuff. Um, from GameStop, I had to buy gas, I had to buy food. And so Paxful was really helpful because I could take my Bitcoin and get gift cards for the stuff I needed. And that's part of the way I, I made it through these two weeks. Yeah, and, and one of the points, I mean, I, it's, it's so wonderful to be talking to him, such an expert here, I have to he say. He is, uh, he's our guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but one of the interesting things, the points that we make in this piece is that, you know, we think about digital currencies as being Bitcoin, you know, Ethereum, whatever. Um, these gift cards are their own kind of digital currency, and, and they've been around for a really long time, and they're actually really important to uh, big companies, including Microsoft, but also, of course, Apple and, you know, and others. So, so it's kind of a, a, a sort of nice reminder that you know you think of you think of one one side you have crypto and on the other side you have sort of the real economy but they're you know they're all together and and mashed up in interesting ways. So and you make a great point about um, why companies love these gift cards so much. And I hadn't ever thought about it before, but the fact is, so many people get these gift cards, actual physical cards, not just the five by five codes. And they have them lying around, and they forget about them, and that turns into millions or even maybe hundreds of millions of dollars of the revenue that a company gets without ever having to give out products. Yeah, and there's been some regulation here. You know, a few years back, Congress uh, made a rule saying you couldn't uh, have the gift. The gift cards had to last, I think, for at least five years. But but at some point, these things expire. There are fees. And the other interesting thing that, that's brought up in this story, you know, Microsoft can give out the gift cards as like a marketing expense, and then it only has to book that. Uh, if somebody actually redeems them. Otherwise, it's just, you know, they just give them out. They don't have to do anything with it. So it's basically free money for a lot of these uh, big companies. So, Max, how did they catch this guy? It seems like you talk about Bitcoin. You can't trace that, presumably, although now there's maybe you can. You can trace maybe that. You can. I keep telling I know everyone this. That's kind of what we just it's learned. It's the most traceable <laughs> currency that there is. 
So, uh, yeah, they, they didn't, it had nothing to do with the, the crypto thing. That's not how they caught him. They caught him because he was basically using his colleagues' passwords, which, which worked for a while. Uh, basically, his colleagues had really bad passwords. As we say <laughs> in the story, you know, one of them was, you know, secret one, two, three. So he was, he was guessing these passwords. He was using a, a kind of a, a VPN situation where it looked like his traffic was coming from uh, a different continent. But he's using the same computer that he was uh, logging on with. So, so he's logs on to his work computer, uh, and then he logs on as a criminal. It's the same computer they were able to find him. The other thing he did was he shipped one of his stolen uh, graphics cards. He used the he used the codes to buy graphics cards. Shipped it to a previous address, and they connected it to him. Basically, uh, it was a big data project. I mean, really interesting uh, in this story the the kind of scope of Microsoft's security operation. I mean, they were the real ones who broke this. Case, then they turned it over to the oh, federal okay. government. Uh, but but they're the ones who initially fingered uh, uh, the, the 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 perp here, and then the, the feds picked up the capes. They did their own investigation, and then then they prosecuted. The guy had a uh, stolen a copy of Microsoft Office essentially and registered it to his startup. So. <laughs> that wasn't very smart. Right, so, exactly. So, yeah, they, 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 if he had just done the crypto, I think he could have gotten away with it for a while longer. All right, Max. A lot of cool stuff. And he yeah. was planning on getting a seaplane, a ski chalet, a yacht. He has a great <laughs> list in the story of the stuff he's going to get with his next 10 million bucks. That's funny. I mean, when you're doing a good heist, you got to have a seaplane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Max Chapkin, thanks so much for joining us. Max is a columnist for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us here on a Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And again, the big, big take stories. These are fascinating stories. This isn't Give me 200 words on Microsoft. These are deep dives, deeply reported, really interesting uh, stories. Uh, and again, check out the Bloomberg Business Week for the heist issue. And of course, for all these big take stories, uh, you can find them at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's get over to Bill Smead right now, Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management. I love to talk to Bill and Cole as well about value investing. They are principled investors out of Phoenix, Arizona. And Bill, you've got some uh, interesting plays that you think are, are undervalued um, in the pharma side, Amgen, Merck, Pfizer. And I wonder why you think uh, the markets haven't given the, the valuations to these investments that you think they deserve. Well, thank you uh, for having us. And, and we think that, uh, first of all, the relative values are incredible compared to the last 20 years they're they're the cheapest relative to the rest of the stocks in the s p they've been in 20 years the second thing is anecdotal uh we have a cardiologist in our building in phoenix and since people got vaccinated it's standing room only in the waiting room to get in there and that is not yet reflected in the price of these medicine stocks so part of it it seems bill you know it's just kind of I would think that pharmaceutical stocks now, I think about them a lot more with COVID-19. I think about them in a good way. I'm not sure if that translates into higher stock prices, but part of it, it seems to be just perception. These companies maybe don't market themselves correctly. Yeah, that they, they've made the last five to 10 years one of the biggest PR errors and advertising errors in history, but it looks like they're ready to rectify that. Now, I noticed Lily's running a commercial where they teach people about a bunch of different medicines they make and at the end of it it comes on and the tagline is Eli Lilly a medicine company right it uh, Nancy Reagan said just say no to drugs uh, <laughs> cannabis 
cannabis stores sell drugs. Uh, these people sell medicine. And now that people have been touched, their lives, even even very healthy people have now been positively benefited by these vaccines. They now realize that these folks make medicine. And, and ultimately, that won't switch things over in a day. But at some point in time, their earnings will be better than a lot of other people and their prices will have started cheap and it will be a successful three to five year uh, outlook investment. Now, I'll, I'll stand up for the for the weed here. Um, you know, liquor stores sell drugs, too, and a lot of people use cannabis as medicine. I know you guys are a pretty conservative shop, but have you ever invested? Have you ever thought about investing in cannabis? No, uh, I, I will say, though, I had uh, uh, a back massage at a reputable place called Hand and Stone, and she offered me for extra money uh, an oil that, that she thought would be good for the muscles that were bothering me. CBD. Yep. Cannabinoid right. oils. <laughs> I want to ask you also about something else, Bill, because I love Phoenix. I love hanging out, having dinner in Scottsdale, going up to Sedona. Um, if I could get on the course and play at TPC, that would be amazing as well. We've seen housing prices skyrocket all over the country. What's real estate like down there? Well, it's been pretty nutty. Uh, but what what you what everyone needs to understand is it is in the DNA of Americans, going back to their great-great-great-grandparents, who came to the East Coast and then constantly, for the last 200 years, have arbitraged land values. So people are, like, shocked. It's like, okay, there's 90 million millennials. They're going to want what 65 million Gen Xers wanted. That means 36% more humans. And they were delayed in this whole process until COVID hit and the pandemic uh, uh, brought the need for a home to the forefront. So now the first arbitrage was Los Angeles to Las Vegas and Phoenix. The, the next arbitrage after that is the, you know, the Spokane's and Reno's and, and we're, those have already exploded. So just think of anywhere across the country where it's a pleasant place to live. There's 100,000 people there and there's water and Wi-Fi. We're going to build a ton of homes in those places because that's what the land arbitrage dictates. And the market share of our home builders, which would be D.R. Horton, Lennar, and NVR, Ryan Holmes, is nine times what it was 27 years ago. So a disproportionately large part of the homes being built will be built by us. All right. Hey, Bill, just real quickly, what's the high temperature there today? Uh, I'm not in Phoenix. Okay. <laughs> it is 63 to it's 63 degrees in Seaside, Oregon. We're on a bit of a, uh, a jaunt. All right, good move there, Bill. I'll tell you Escaping what. Last time heat. I was last time I was in Phoenix, it was 106 degrees. But it's um, a, but it's a dry heat. It's, it's a, dry. a dry heat, and then we shot up to Flagstaff, and it was much cooler up yeah, there. So I just exactly. love that. All right, Bill's all over. He's got it covered here. Uh, Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer, Smead Capital Management, about $2.8 billion in assets under management. Talking to us today uh, about pharma stocks, he thinks uh, that they have some room to go. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.